Hello, North Texas sports fans. Welcome to Sports Day Insider from the Dallas Morning News. It's your weekly update on all things Cowboys, Rangers, Mavericks, Stars. Should I go on? I'm Kevin Sherrington. I'm Evan Grant. And I'm David Moore. We break down the calls, the playmakers, and all the inside scoop right here every Tuesday. And you can stay up to date on every Sports Day Insider episode and other great shows. Just follow the Dallas Morning News wherever you get your podcast. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate the Dallas Morning News feed. It really does make a difference. Guys, can we get the show started? Let's do it. Here we go, sports fans. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider. I'm Kevin Sherrington, joined by David Moore. Hello, David. Kevin, happy to have you back, and at least I am. If you happen to listen to last week's podcast, it, you did not come off so well by some, but I I felt I was there defending you every step of the way. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you were. I'm sure you bunch of backstabbers. <laughs> Bastards. <laughs> Backstabbing, and glorious. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, you know what? It was. I was Which is a, a set up for our other host. If you want to go straight to him. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, Evan Grant. Hello, Evan. How are you? Oh, howdy do there, Kevin and David. How are y'all? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to say that while I was traipsing the the the, the winding boulevards of New York City, and then out in the Hamptons. Uh, I didn't oh, think about you boys. The Hamptons. Your place in the Hamptons. You spent a little time at your place in the Hamptons. Did you really go to the Hamptons? Yeah, my brother-in-law has a place there. Oh, oh. nice. Oh. I'm gonna tell you what. And here's the th- here's what you'll love about this the most. We got in a fight with somebody at a restaurant who 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 said that our our daughter, our 28 year old daughter, was drunk and about to spill something on their Porsche. So they told her to get away from their car. And so, you know, I, I didn't take that. So well. That was Billy Joel. <laughs> no, it didn't. But we did get this. So we did at our at the one restaurant we went to in town in Amagansett, uh, which is the town they live right outside of uh, my brother-in-law. Uh, and uh, there was at the place we ate just around the corner from us, just a few feet were um, our old friend Alec Baldwin and a guy named Paul McCartney. You saw them? Saw or them. heard I, they were there. It was the best part of it was is that when my brother-in-law's partner was in in the in this little place getting ready to order and my, and my daughter was in there standing there in line with them, they looked at this guy with a ball cap on and he said, uh, "Oh, are you in line?" and he said, "Oh no, we're just chatting." That was that was my that was my Paul McCartney imitation. I was going to say what, I, I couldn't tell it was either Paul McCartney or Alec Baldwin. It didn't sound like either one, but we'll, we'll take your word for it. That's, that's almost as scintillating as my run-in with Steven Tyler in the omelets line at a brunch in Fort, in Florida. <laughs> when uh, I turned around and I looked at him and he was right there. And I said to him, hey, nice job on the anthem at the World Series. <laughs> Thank What'd you, and I'll have the smoked salmon and uh, bay, <laughs> yeah. bay shrimp, please. You should have you should have stepped aside and said, "Walk this way." Oh, <laughs> that, w- that would have been the way to handle that. Come on, be a little clever, would you? It's like like my uh, an old friend of mine that was an outdoors writer at the Post. He saw, uh, oh, he he saw who who's the guy that sang uh, 
The story's going real downhill. He's a little, he sees little Richard walking toward him on the sidewalk. And he doesn't know what to say. You know, he's, I'm trying to think of something clever to say. And finally he said, uh, uh, toot, tootie fruity as he walked past him. And little Richard <laughs> said, all oh, Rudy. And that was uh-huh. it. That was the, I bet that he's was never the, heard that one before. <laughs> well, he was probably glad just that he was able to have a line to go back at him with. So that's all right. Hey, I was I in a restroom been- at the San Francisco airport one time. Turned to oh. the right, and the person in the urinal next to me was Huey Lewis. <laughs> you did not say something to a guy at the urinal next to you, did in you? In that setting, I felt David, it was best not David to start a conversation. To <laughs> said to him at the urinal, I need a new drug. <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing. You do that, and next thing you know, you're in handcuffs. <laughs> and they're taking you away. Don't that's a, that's the I've only told my sons two things, and one of them is don't talk to the guy next to you at the urinal. Okay? I, listen, I nothing makes me more uncomfortable than urinal talk. I mean, I, it's just like, <laughs> dude, I'm in here. I want out. I just I, the, the only sound I want to hear is flushing and washing. That's it. Yeah. You have enough time at your age just doing your duty there at the urinal. You don't need a second thing to gum up the works, so to speak. Let's move on. I think that people have probably had enough of this talk. Uh, so, Evan, what's your problem with, with hatch season? Yes. Yeah, what? This is Okay, last week you disparaged the entire southern half of the country in their barbecue. I just one Now it's like, oh, I don't like Carolina barbecue. Oh, hatch chilies, please. What is the deal? You are hatch such chili? a culinary snob. What is I, wrong with you? I am. I listen, I walked into, you know, I love Central Market. I I it's my favorite place. Then I, I guess you can't go for the next five weeks because I love it's to go there season. every Sunday and I swear to God, everything in the place right now has hatch chili in it and, and I it just should don't be. get it. Oh. Hatch chili tortillas, hatch chili cornbread. It's like it's like Bubba freaking gump. I mean, it is anything they can stuff a hatch chili in, they do. And I brought home some hatch chili crab dip and i tried it and it was like meh meh i i don't get it what is the attraction it's not like it's bad but what's the what's so special about it it's very special just like your mother told you you were very special when you were growing up evan <laughs> oh that's a good answer <laughs> well give me one reason why they seen it okay it has a wonderful flavor and heat to it that you don't get in other peppers necessarily because sometimes uh, jalapenos go really hot or very little taste. And it's just, the, you know, spice, it's just the crunch. Serranos are getting hotter. Habaneros are beyond that. But you have, you strike that perfect balance of heat with the green chili that you don't have with other chilies necessarily at other times of the year. And I'll tell you what, you, you, you can scoff at this all you like. There is, there are very few foods that are better than green chili stew with a good pork shoulder or pork loin as the base. That is as close to a perfect food as maybe you can get, Evan Grant. As close wow. to a perfect food as I can get. Okay. All right, all right. Go, go eat your deep fried artichokes. I know you're big on those, but I'm telling you, green chili over artichokes any day. Kevin, where do you, you don't seem to have a real opinion on this whole hatch chili thing? Yeah, I don't really care. It's just like <laughs> it's like 
<laughs> Copper River salmon, you know, it's like, ah, you know, it's salmon. Oh, oh Copper it's, River salmon. There is a big difference in Copper River salmon. It, there is a big difference, and I don't really like the difference. It, the, the the texture is a little too slimy. It's too rich for, for you? Or? It, well, it's a little slimy. It's I, more it's just, oily. There's no doubt about yeah. that. Yeah, it's, it's a little too oily for me. Uh, and, and you know, I'm down on salmon altogether. You know, this is a, this is a what? very dumb fish. It's a dumb fish to begin with swimming upstream. Fish. Come on. You know, I like to eat smart fish. You know, I want to be swimming upstream our entire lives. Why are you you knocking that? That's that's the whole point. If I wanted something like that, I just, you know, that's just me all over. So all fish, all fish are smart because they swim in schools. (laughs) Oh, Evan. Well, I'm glad you got that one off. Uh, All right. Let's move on to something that that people actually want to hear. So, David, what do you think about uh, uh, Dak Prescott? Is he gonna is he gonna play in the game against the Texans this week? Is he done for the preseason? Well, Mike McCarthy said earlier this week if he did not play against Houston this weekend, he would not play in the preseason because he feels the fourth game should be devoted entirely to uh, players who are battling for roster spots that uh, they need to see them in those game situations to develop the roster to determine how to fill it out. So uh, if he doesn't play this weekend, he won't play. My belief is now at this stage, he's not going to play. You know, they returned and had their first practice uh, since Oxnard, uh, the the Southern California portion of training camp, uh, returned to the Star in Frisco, had their first practice on Monday. Uh, Dak Prescott, while throwing off to the side and looking pretty good in what he did, did not take part in team or competitive drills. Now, there is only one more padded practice before they play Houston on Saturday. So I think it's unrealistic to expect a quarterback who now, at this moment, as we do this podcast, has not taken part in team drills for three weeks to come back, take part on a limited basis in team drills on Wednesday, and then turn around and throw uh, later this weekend. It, it would be inconsistent with how they've handled this uh, latissimus uh, strain. So I, I think my belief is on Wednesday, they will declare uh, he's not going to take part in practice, which means he won't play in that game. And he will play for the first time since his ankle injury, which was a much more concerned than the shoulder uh, took place last October. So you're not going to see him in the preseason. It's my belief. So I have one question about that. Sure. What, do you, do either of you guys feel like a quarterback not taking an active snap in the preseason, um, especially one who's coming off the, the the injury that he came off of in as much time as he's missed, does that have an impact on his um, effectiveness early in the year? I believe it does. You know, and and I believe you look at you look at. Dak Prescott in the first game last year where they had no preseason games and they went out there. He wasn't as sharp as he certain those next four games, he was on fire. But that first game, uh, they were just a little bit off, uh, weren't quite there. And everyone's going to rationalize this now. And Dak wasn't dealing with the the shoulder strain, the latissimus strain early in camp. Um, But the first time we talked to Dak in training camp before he suffered Uh, the shoulder strain, we asked him specifically about the importance, if he felt it was important to play in the preseason, coming back off that injury. And he said, 
uh, well, one, you know, I always want to play. I'm a guy who wants to play regardless. That's just kind of, you know, and some players are like that. Some feel they need that work. Others say, oh, I'm fine. I don't need it. But he's at this stage of his career, he's very much I need it. And he said, I, I think it'll be good to get out there. And then he said, you know, Zach Martin and I were talking about it. And we said, even if it's only a couple of series, we really feel a lot better going into the regular season having done that than not having done it. And we felt that's why we were a little, we weren't quite there to start last the regular season because the pandemic erased all preseason games around the league. So he was saying early in camp before he knew he wasn't going to play, how important it was for him to get out there and do something just to feel good. And like he said, uh, I'm confident in my ankle, but I still haven't been out in a full speed situation where people are like falling at my my legs and I'm having to move and and is there going to be any anxiety or hesitation there you want to go through that a few times before you get into the regular season ideally now they will rationalize it and say it doesn't matter that you can still get there you have to be smart about it and all that's true but the idea was for him the plan going into this offseason was for him to play in the third preseason game a quarter to a quarter and a half and then go into the regular season so part of how they wanted to uh, proceed in the blueprint of him coming back from this injury uh, has now been taken away from them because of the shoulder, not because of the ankle. Kevin, what do you think? Does it have a long-term impact? No, I don't think a long-term, but it certainly does in a short-term. And you're starting out against Tampa Bay, so you can put that yeah. down as a big fat L. You know? A very good uh, defense, yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that the, there's there's no way they win that first that opener. They, they, they probably weren't going to win it anyway, but really not now. I just... The thing about Dak is, he look, he is a guy who has made himself into a, a good passer. He's not naturally that that guy. And so when when you, you are an athlete who kind of has to really work hard to get to that level of where you need to be, then you you need that kind of work and you need the tune-up. It's not something that you just you just run outside. He's not like Aaron Rodgers. You could go out, you know, after being off for six months and throw a ball through a hoop. 50 yards away. I mean, that's just who he is. So uh, I think that will have an impact on it, but there's just nothing to do about it. You know, there's, there's nothing to cry about here. The guy's hurt. You need to give him time to get well. You, you cannot have this linger into the regular season. It's a disaster. All right. So let's, uh, let's very quickly on that. He's always been a volume thrower to your point, Kevin. He's yeah. a guy, you know, some quarterbacks like to put the ball down before training camp and say, well, I don't want, I don't want my arm to get, you know, overused or tired. I'm not going to throw much in the two to three weeks leading up to camp because I'm going to throw so much in camp. He's the opposite category where he feels he needs to throw constantly to keep that edge. And if he's missing a couple of days, he feels like he's behind. So now put that over the fact he's coming off a major injury and he's working on his mechanics. And so he's throwing even more than he would have been throwing going into a normal uh, training camp. So I, I don't think anyone is at fault here. I, I think this is something, and I think everyone was conscientious with it. I, I think it just, there was a domino effect and it just happened. And now you have to manage it from where you are. Yeah. All right. Let's flip over to the defensive side here because, you know, everybody's uh, wondering what's going to happen here with the, with the linebackers, with Micah Parsons coming in the first round draft pick with Keanu Neal coming over a converted safety playing at linebacker. David, if, uh, if uh, the Cowboys want to go out in the opener against Tampa Bay in a nickel package, who are the starting linebackers? Uh, for, based on what we've seen in the preseason game and also for the majority of, of the practice reps, you would see Micah Parsons and Keanu Neal 
uh, is the linebackers out in the nickel package. And, you know, the league today is more and more nickel package defense uh, because teams are spreading around and throwing the ball so much. So it's all about matchups and, and can you match up with the tight ends and, and running backs and space underneath. Uh, and, uh, Neil and Parsons have, have been out there the most. Uh, they have the most speed. Uh, Keanu Neal has been outstanding in coverage in these games, just outstanding. Uh, and Parsons gives you so much. And, you know, I, I was talking about this with uh, Michael Gelkin before the, uh, the Cardinals game the other day, and it was like, when you look out here defensively, who has been the best defensive player in camp? And I think it's clearly been Micah Parsons. Um, now, you can say – wow, that's great to reinforce who you drafted, but it's also like, well, you had all these other veterans and already Micah Parsons looks like the best defender. Now, part of that is because you haven't seen Demarcus Lawrence. He's been working off on the side. I I think Demarcus Lawrence is probably still their best defender, but I think you can make a pretty strong argument going into the season that Micah Parsons is going to be their second best defender. Uh, So you're going to see him on the field in more packages, I think, than we envisioned initially after he was drafted. But... uh, and they're running through and working all of these guys in different scenarios. And Leighton Vander Esch and Jalen Smith are still going to play. But it appears to me that in, in a lot of the nickel packages, Parsons and, and Keanu Neal, are gonna, you're going to get a heavy dose of that defensively. And that means that the, uh, the, the big loser in this probably is going to be Jalen Smith, isn't it? Yeah. Now, you know, when you're in your base coverage, I, you're going to see, I think you're going to see uh, Jalen Smith, Leighton Vander Esch, and Micah Parsons will all be out there. Uh, if you when you open in a base defense, and but but the guy who's going to suffer the most as far as snaps will definitely be Jalen Smith. He'll basically be the strong side linebacker in this scheme. You know, strong strong side linebackers play sixteen to twenty four snaps a game, depending on what you're what you're looking at. I mean, if a team runs a lot, you're you're going to be out there more. But but how many teams run a lot in the NFL now? Uh, and, and Leighton Vander Esch is still better in coverage than Jalen. Uh, I think you're going to see packages for Jalen Smith to rush the passer on the edge. Uh, but when you're talking about uh, coverage being significant, uh, Jalen Smith really out of the five linebackers on the roster would be five out of the five because Jabril Cox is also the other fourth-round pick out of LSU is very good in coverage. Yeah, you're paying Jalen Smith an awful lot of money to be a 16, 20 snap guy. So that's yes. a that's a, a loss for the Cowboys. Um, so, uh, Evan, let's shift over to uh, the Rangers this year and what we think that they have done. And and the best news about the Rangers to me is that the season is two thirds of the way done. That's that's the best news to me about this Rangers season. Well, boy, do I have good news for you. What's that? It's more like seventy percent done. Oh, my math Ooh. is bad. All right, good to nice. Um, no, I, I I think that most of I, I think for most fans, the most disappointing thing about the, the rebuild is that that it's been hard for them to see real visible building blocks for the future on the current roster. And and the bottom line is there may not be any. Uh, if you go back to 2012, the Cubs. Um, they were one of the last teams to lose 100 and then come back within a five-year period and win a World Series. And the number of guys that played on the 2012 Cubs and then on the 2016 World Series champs were two, Chris Bryant and and a reliever, and that's it. So maybe there is nobody here that will help. But I do think that if, if you're looking at the pieces 
that you've got and the projects that you had going into the year, you have to be pretty encouraged by what you've seen from Dane Dunning and a couple of the other young pitchers. And if you get two or three pitchers out of this that you can count on long-term, then you're going to have, this will have had at least some net value on the field. Uh, I think, Kevin, when we talked about this, your concern was that when I brought up Dane Dunning, um, Taylor Hearn, and uh, Joe Barlow, which would be the three guys to me that stand out most, your concern was there's only one starter in there. That's correct. And, and that's to me the hardest thing to identify on a team is a, is a rotation. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's the issue for me going forward is, is that in this entire season, you know, going into the season, we felt pretty good about Dane Dunning's chances. I mean, I thought, you know, he, he'd look good in his trial with the White Sox and, and, uh, I thought that he had an opportunity and I think he's done that. And they've been very careful with him and they've not stretched him out. Uh, they're doing all the right things uh, with him at this point. Uh, I, I just would have liked to have seen them identify one more starter this year uh a guy that you you thought you could really count on going forward and I, and unless they shift taylor hearn to the starting rotation which seems a, a little bit of a stretch to me at this point i just don't see that well as we talk here you know this is taylor's going to make the start tonight on tuesday for the rangers against seattle and the, the big questions that that i need to see answered from him going forward are does he have a third pitch to get through a lineup a third time and he really hasn't had to do that. Um, he's never faced a hitter a third time in a game. So that's a big deal to see that happen over the next couple of, of weeks. Um, secondly, he's never thrown more than 65 pitches in a big league game. So, and, and quite frankly, he's only thrown more than 53 times. And those have all happened in the last two weeks. So there's there's a lot of buildup that's still got to happen here with Taylor Hearn. Um, but, but what I do think is we've seen some positive results over longer stints, over two and three and four inning outings. Uh, and as, if the Rangers continue to be careful with them um, and build him up 75, 90 pitches and reinforce, you know, that there's got to be, they've got to find a third pitch in there because he's basically a two pitch pitcher and that's not going to work at the big league level. He's going to have to use his changeup a little bit more, and he's going to have to be able to um, use the slider a little bit more when he needs to. So those are the things I'm looking for from Taylor Hearn. Uh, but you've also got Spencer Howard, who you're going to look at here these next five weeks. And I don't know if they're going to try and build up Spencer Howard to five or six innings, but I do think that they will stretch him out more than they have. And you're going to have John King come back from the injured list uh, here in the next – two to three days, and I think he's going to get a chance to, to, to pitch some uh, longer outings. And before September 1st, it would not surprise me if they call up Glenn Otto, the pitcher that they, they acquired from the Yankees in the in the Joey Gallo trade. So you will have a, a September full of, of starting rotation auditions. Will that tell you anything long term? I'm not sure. With the exception of Dunning, I'm not sure that, it will, that there will be a whole lot of long-term value in it. Yeah, Dunning just seems to me the guy that that, that looks like he knows what he's doing. Uh, the, he just looks like a, here's a guy who's getting outs and he's not blowing anybody away. Just he just knows how to pitch, uh, and and I think that uh, that impresses me about him. Uh, and it seems to be the issue with a lot of these guys. I, I just feel like that Taylor Hearn uh, is is the kind of guy. If you're looking at him as a starter, that's two or three years down the road. I, I just feel like he'll have to be at, come out of the bullpen for a while before. 
he develops into that potential. Uh, uh, just just seems to me uh, that that should be the route for him. And look, let's, if, let's, you, if if you've got to go some unconventional methods and go and, and piggyback guys next year, um, then maybe you do that. But I think right now to at least look at Taylor Hearn and try and get a baseline on what he would do as a starter, I think now is about the right time. Oh, absolutely. There's no question about that. That now's the time to be finding stuff out. You know, I was thinking about that, you know, when the, uh, the Rangers uh, this year seemed to have a real success story in Adolis Garcia, who who's kind of rallying a little bit lately, uh, showing a little more pop, uh, but still kind of struggling a little, a little kind of, he's kind of been a, almost a free fall at this point. Um, you know, what do you think about Adolis' future? Do you think he, that he's going to be the starting center fielder next year? Um, I think he's going to be in the outfield next year, basically because they, they probably don't have uh, any other um, really attractive options. I think in September you will see Leody Tavares come back up here and get another opportunity, but I don't know if um, if, if that's – if he's the answer, I think Leody has hit the ball better here at AAA over the last couple months. Uh, on Adolis, I think anything you get at this point in time long term is just kind of found money. Um, yeah, no question and, about that. And yeah. listen, he can play at the big league level. He can do some damage at the big league level. I think the swing and miss is always going to be a significant flaw. But he can he can defend. He can run. He's got some power. Uh, at the very least, that's a piece somewhere in, in a lineup. Is is it a fourth outfielder? Maybe. Um, and, and maybe that has more value to the Rangers long-term to, to peel them off at some point in time because by the time they get they get to a point where they're going to contend, he might not have as much use for them. But I, I think that even if he doesn't win Rookie of the Year, and right now I don't know that he will, um, I, I think that he's clearly been a positive development. I just don't know if it's a positive long-term development. Yeah. Yeah. Me neither. All right. Uh, that's going to do it for our Rangers, uh, segment. Uh, we want to get shift over now to, uh, some college talk. Uh, the AP preseason poll came out, uh, Monday and in that poll, Oklahoma was second. Uh, which sounds pretty good. Uh, and I think that's based largely on Spencer Rattler being probably one of the best quarterbacks coming back uh, this year in the nation, a, a, a Heisman favorite, uh, a guy who's been compared to kind of a uh, Patrick Mahomes starter kit. It's all pretty good stuff. And Lincoln Riley's done a great job with his quarterbacks, as we well know. Uh, not a surprise, but certainly is uh, good news uh, down in College Station. The Aggies came in sixth based on their strong season last year and winning the Orange Bowl. Um, and uh, I, I want to talk about that because uh, Texas came in at 21. So we've got a, a Oklahoma second, A&M sixth, Texas 21. Uh, that's obviously just all a guess now. It doesn't really mean much because we, we base everything based on what happened the year before and very little about what we think about guys developing this year. Uh, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, but, uh, at this point, A&M is looking pretty good. Uh, and Jimbo, the higher Jimbo Fisher is looking really good. Uh, the other day ESPN came out with a ranking of the top 100 college football coaches of the last 50 years. They did that because they didn't want to go back way into history and to figure this stuff out, uh, and make comparisons. Uh, but uh, Jimbo came in at 34. Uh, Gary Patterson, I believe, came in at uh, 24, 20, 
I think he had that 24 at TCU. Uh, Mac Brown came in at 21, uh, and there were only two current college coaches who came in higher than Mac, and that was uh, Dabo Swinney and then Nick Saban at number one, uh, which has to make – Mac feel awfully good considering that uh, Texas fired him. Uh, and I have to say at the time, Texas was, was certainly floundering, but they've, they've only gotten worse since then. Uh, and some with a little bit of a brief revival there by Tom Herman has not been an impressive run by them. Meanwhile, the Aggies uh, going into Jimbo Fisher's fourth year, have uh, have started this thing up, uh, and to come in thirty fourth when you've only been a head coach for eleven, you're going into your eleventh season. He started at uh, Florida State in two thousand ten. That's pretty impressive. Uh, but he's got a pretty impressive track record. He won a he won a national title at Florida State. Um, and there's things about Jimbo that I don't like that much. Uh, but I'll say this about him: he he's a football coach. Uh, he knows what he's doing. He he gets everybody in the right places. There's uh, there are no there's no excuses. He's not all on one side of the ball and not paying attention to the other. Everything uh, about Jimbo Fisher is football, football, football. Uh, he he doesn't fall into some of the traps that some of the coaches at Texas have fallen into. And I, and I know that's a different situation there from what it is at uh, uh, College Station, uh, but it's still a, a, a remarkable story of what Jimbo's been able to do there. Well, I think he extends the the gap between UT and A&M football now in the time he's been there, and this is going into his fourth season. But let's take a step back even further. How how long has the A&M football program, in your mind, been ahead of the UT football program? And is, is it getting to the point time-wise where it makes it even more difficult to make up for lost ground when you've been behind that long? Well, it does. You know, you can go all the way back to Johnny Manziel. I mean, uh, yeah. essentially, that's when all that started, and right when they went into the SEC. And it wasn't because they went into the SEC. It was because of Johnny no, Manziel. But, but that know. was a marker, and, and now you have UT following A&M into the SEC. At how long ago has A&M been there? So they've been able to establish themselves. Again, Manziel was the demarcation line along with the move. But that's a significant period of time, and now you see UT following A&M to the SEC. So, I mean, it's just uh, they, they've been in A&M's wake from a football standpoint for quite a while now. Yeah, and they don't like to admit that, obviously. No. Uh, and because cause here's the thing, if you, you know, I, I've been covering college football in the state for a long time, and, and, and you know, A&M – likes to talk about his tradition. The traditions at AM are great. The football tradition is not great. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. they last won a national title in 1939. So, you know, there were a lot of years when AM was pretty much terrible. There was the great, there was a really good period in the fifties with Bear Bryant and at the late fifties. And then there was a little bit there in the sixties and a little bit there in the seventies. And, and then RC Slocum did a very nice job in the uh, late eighties and early nineties. Uh, but, you know, that there has not been a lot of winning. Texas has, has dominated uh, Texas pretty much over most of its history, but that's not the case anymore. Now, it does, it's not to say that Texas can't come back. It's just really difficult to do uh, to have Oklahoma, A&M, and Texas all top 10 teams at the same time. Uh, if you go back and look at the AP poll over the over the, since 1935, uh, I think there's only been – at at best, and I used to know this exactly, but I think there's been about three or four times in, in history 
when all three of those programs finish in the top 10 at the same time. And, and I think the reason for that is pretty clear. They are all drawn from the same recruiting base. And it's very difficult to get all of those to, you know, as, as much great football talent as there is in this state, it's hard to, to get it directed to those three programs, right? Cause you already got everybody else feeding off of it. Yeah. All the other division one schools in this state. And now you've got the sec coming in here. Everybody else comes in and, and, and bleeds this state drive. It's football talent. And when you take into consideration and how many times as Oklahoma had a coach like Lincoln Riley, who I think clearly mm-hmm. is one of the top four coaches draw. in Oklahoma's yeah. history. Uh, so that's that's a great coach and, and a guy who's producing first-round pick quarterbacks and Heisman quarterbacks. So he's always going to recruit great quarterbacks. He's always going to do a great job as long as he stays there if he doesn't go to the NFL. Now you've got Jimbo Fisher at A&M who clearly has distinguished himself, I think. He, he's working his way into the top five of, of A&M's football coaches ever at this point. Uh, and and now Texas, I, we have no idea what Steve Sarkeesian is going to be. Going to be no idea. You know, his, his track record as a head coach is not that great. He did a really nice job at at Alabama, but I think everybody ought to do a nice job when when your head coach is Nick Saban. So uh, that's going to be really hard for Texas. You know, when, as you were pointing out, now that AM has this head start and they've got a coach who's now got them in the top ten. Uh, and I think he's going to keep them in the top 10, frankly, uh, that's going to be really hard because Oklahoma's not going anywhere either. Uh, so both of those schools have a leg up on Texas at this point. Steve Sarkeesian really has his work cut out for him. And, and let me just point out that as we go, as you go down that AP poll, if you put all those teams in the SEC as they would, as they would fit, Texas is the seventh of the SEC, of the future SEC lineup that's in the AP poll. And to me, that just means – the schedule is going to get that much harder when they go into into SEC play, and it's going to be that much more difficult to catch up, like you guys are talking about. I I, I feel like Texas's gap is it may be long term here. Yeah, you you can have like you said, you can have two team two of those three teams in the top ten, but the third best case scenario is usually going to be in that twenty to twenty five to thirty range because it's just hard. It's hard to support otherwise. And let's face it, that that gap from 20 to 25 to top 10, while it looks like it would be easier to navigate, it's not. I think that's the hardest step to get into the top 10 is when you're like, a, you know, when you're late teen, early 20, trying to get into the top 10. That's really more difficult than sometimes being 30 and hitting on a class and then just making a big jump up because of the conference you're in and and whatever. So it's, uh, again, very, very difficult to navigate where they are with with the infrastructure and coaches that Oklahoma and A&M have in place, which is what that's, to me, that's to your point, Kevin. Just remember, I mean, again, do you see any scenario in which the SEC lines up in and Texas does not annually play Alabama, A and M, LSU, and Oklahoma? Well, it depends. You know, you, you see a lot of different things. I think the, the if they're going to keep it in two divisions, the most logical thing is that Alabama shifts over to the East. So if, if Alabama shifts over to the East, then then that's a uh, gosh, that's a, a blessing for Texas and everybody yeah. else. 
and the, you know, on this side of it, it, it's been talked about the more likely thing they would do is have pods. Uh, and if they, but I, they I mean, get, I think what the, the pod that makes the most sense would be putting all those old Southwest conference teams together. I think so too. Uh, I, I, I think you, you had to keep Texas and Oklahoma in, in together and you had, uh, because of the of state fair game and, uh, and, and it makes perfect sense to do it with A&M as well. So and then why wouldn't you have Arkansas in there? Uh, I think that would be that would be terrific. That's certainly what Arkansas would want. But then, if you're part of the old guard of the SEC, I think you would argue, well, wait a minute, that's the easier conference. We've been the one who've had to endure <laughs> all of this. Why are they getting a break? Uh, let's you know, let's look at this again. Oh, I don't think there's going to be any question. There's a lot of uh, concern about how this thing is going to break down. I think that's probably what uh, uh, Sankey probably told A&M when he told them, listen, you guys need to calm down uh, and, and go along with this Texas thing. We'll take care of you here. If there's something you don't like, something way you don't like the way it's set up, then, we'll, then we can talk about that and we can adjust. So it'll be very interesting to see how it, it, that all gets uh, uh, settled over there. But I think this goes back to the, the, the Sarkeesian hire. I Texas people were, you know, they, they, the big the big dogs at Texas were really on board. They're the ones that pushed for Sarkeesian. They wanted a guy yep. who coached under Nick Saban in Alabama. That's that's all well and good, but I tell you what, and I I, I know that uh, uh, Urban Meyer, you know, wanted to go to Jacksonville, and that's he wanted to try this. But I sure would have tried to money whip him just like A and M money whip Jimbo Fisher because you now you put Urban Meyer in that environment. Uh, then I'm gonna I'm gonna say okay I'll take my chance with him against Jimbo and Lincoln Riley. Then Urban Meyer Urban Meyer would potentially give you a short term catch up to to the gap, but he's certainly not the long term answer there either. No, but I take I take five years of him. You know I don't know that you'd get five years at this point. Well, you might not. But the, but the thing to remember is that he he had Ryan Day on his staff, and everybody sure likes Ryan Day at Oklahoma, at Ohio State now. So that's that's the thing. You you want to, yes, you want a guy who can fix this now. You got to stop this drain, yeah. which is what's happening. I would take getting back to a level playing field and then manage it from there. But you yeah. need to get back to a level playing field, and it is not now. Absolutely. All right, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. We covered a wide range of stuff from uh, Hatch Chili. Hey, Kevin, to- you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put a big do? slab of Hatch Chili <laughs> on a burger with a little bit of melted pepper jack. Uh, that sounds good, David. Just make sure that when you that when you go into the restroom afterwards, don't talk to the guy next to you in the <laughs> urinal, okay? No, There should be, like, stalls that are, like, no talking. No talking stalls. You go in there, you're not going to be bothered by somebody, you know, who's trying to hit the little urinal cake or anything. I just, just leave me alone. That's a little TMI there, uh, Evan. Thank you very much for the urinal cake stuff. That's great, though. From Hatch Chili to urinal cakes. We cover it all on this podcast. That's going to do it for us. See ya, everybody. Well, that wraps up another episode of Sports Day Insider. Is it over already? Well, Evan, all good things come to an end, I suppose. The show is produced by Jeff Whittington. And presented by the Dallas Morning News. Our theme song is by Dallas's own John Dufalo. Don't forget to follow the Dallas Morning News wherever you get your quality podcasts. You'll never miss a Sports Day Insider episode, and you'll discover some other great shows. And if you liked what you heard... Please rate the Dallas Morning News feed and give us a review. 
It helps us reach other sports fans and news junkies. Learn more about this show and other shows at dallasnews.com slash listen. You'll also find special Dallas Morning News subscription rates just for listeners. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you back here next week.